What's happening? This is Isai Rodriguez, host of the Daspination Podcast, where I cater to the professional working man, 40 and above, who's looking to make positive changes to his health, lose weight, and become stronger overall through simple lifestyle changes. I'm here to share inspiration, tips, and proven lessons that I've personally learned and lived through in my 40 plus years on this beautiful blue planet. So today we'll start the discussion off by talking about the topic of you considering asking the nurse to take your blood pressure in both arms. That'll be in our first segment and then we'll move on to our second segment and talk about how the food you're eating might be affecting your sleep. And before we get into that, if you'd like to continue the conversation, then get on over to podcast.daspination.com slash VIP to get on the VIP Insiders community where I share more entertaining behind the scenes stories, tips, and hacks that'll keep you feeling younger and younger each and every day. That's podcast.daspination.com slash VIP. Again, that's podcast.daspination.com slash VIP. Be in the know starting right now. Also, don't forget to rate me on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to this episode right now and leave me a nice, fat, juicy five-star review and some absolutely beautiful words of why you love the show so much. It really helps me get the word out and is honestly the one place where your vote truly matters. And now let's move into our first segment with Healthy Conversations. So in this week's installment of Healthy Conversations, we're talking about um, considering taking your blood pressure in both arms, um, you know, when you go for your regular checkup. So what are we talking about here? Well, I'm sure you've heard about the study that showed how um, how large or, or, or vast discrepancies in your blood pressure between your left and right arms might be a sign of heart trouble in the making, like something brewing, something coming up in the pipes, you know? And, and that's why I said that the next time you get your blood pressure taken at your doctor's office, you might want to consider asking the nurse to take it in both arms just to make sure it's all good you know what I mean so because because here's the deal like I said there was a study published in uh, mid-December of last year um, that showed that a significant difference in the systolic uh, pressure reading or you know the top blood pressure reading between uh, you know this number between the left and the right arms this reading like if there's a big difference this could be a warning sign of like a future heart attack or a stroke you know that's <laughs> that's some terrible shit you know what i mean and now because of the results of this study it's being recommended that if you need a blood pressure check you know that if that it should be checked in both arms at least once <laughs> you know just again just to be on the safe side and so first let's talk about uh blood pressure in general so as you know uh blood pressure is measured in uh what's known as uh, units of millimeters of mercury and it's abbreviated as uh, mm capital h g uh, or you know lowercase m lowercase m capital h and lowercase g uh, millimeters of mercury 
Uh, and this consists of two numbers. Um, as you know, is there's the upper or uh, systolic reading and that represents like the maximum amount of pressure in your arteries, you know, like all together as a whole. And then there's the lower or diastolic reading that shows the pressure in your arteries when your heart muscle is at rest between beats. Now that being said, the new study found that for each degree of difference between the two arms over 10 points or, uh, or, or 10 millimeters of mercury, the risk of having chest pains, a heart attack, or even a stroke increase by 1% over the next decade. Now, that might sound kind of insignificant, you know, like uh, like a, a difference between both arms, that's 10 points, your risk increases only by 1% over a decade. But but here's the thing. I mean, like like if you these these are the things that kind of sneak up on you. You know, if you if you don't take care of yourself early on, like early enough, like as early as possible, twenties, thirties, wherever you at, at 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 this time, wherever you're at in your life cycle, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like the earlier you start monitoring these things, the better it is. You know what I mean? Because again, the something like this that seems so insignificant. You know what? It might be insignificant now, but in, in the long run, it creeps up on you, you know, and, and to reverse that, you know, it's not something that you can do overnight, you know, without medication. And me personally, I'm trying to stay off medications because I hear nothing but, uh, <laughs> you know, terrible side effects. I'm sure you've heard them too, you know, but you know, it's a thing, you know, and, 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 the, and the results from these tests, these studies, the results from these studies indicate that differences above five millimeters of mercury or five points between, you know, two arms can predict what's known as like all-cause mortality. <laughs> I didn't know what this was. I kind of had to look this up and, and kind of understand it. And it's basically like any type of uh, cardiovascular mortality or, or um, cardiovascular events. So again, heart attack stroke those those are like the big ones um but, but there's also uh like the third is like heart disease you know, like all, all that stuff terrible shit, you know for lack of better terms and uh you know for a long time it's been known that a difference in blood pressure between the two arms was linked to poorer health outcomes like this was known for quite some time now but now with the results of this latest study it's pretty much crystal clear that you know the higher the difference in blood pressure between arms the greater the risk of you developing some sort of cardiovascular issues in the near future so it really is again it really is critical to measure both arms at least once you know uh, to establish um, whether or not you you might be at a significant higher risk or not. So the American Heart Association, or as I like to refer to them as uh, the AHA or AHA, <laughs> considers like like they consider blood pressure normal when the top reading is less than 120 and the bottom number is less than 180 and so they say that a difference of 10 points or less between arms is considered normal and isn't you know a huge cause for concern you know it's when you reach a point above that you know again it, it's above that 10 point reading but having higher readings between the two arms might be a sign of a narrowing and stiffening of the arteries 
two main causes for this discrepancy you know what i mean it's usually uh like your your arteries are narrowing or they're constricting or you know they're stiffening now this is something we do want to be concerned about because this can affect blood flow and here's the trick with this it's that what you want to do is you want to measure one arm first and then right after that measure the pressure in your other arm you know so basically taking your pressure back to back in both arms you know first in the right and then the left or first in the left <laughs> and then the right whichever you prefer you know what i mean and ideally you want this done at your doctor's office when you're uh you know when you're there for a checkup as i mentioned earlier but he here's the unfortunate part or i guess i don't know how it is in the um, overseas like in the european uh, countries and asia and stuff like that but here you know doctor's offices don't find the you know quote unquote the uh, uh the requirement <laughs> they don't find this requirement as a uh, you know as as necessary you know probably probably because that's what the insurance company is telling them <laughs> which again sucks but unfortunately uh, that's the system we've got in place here uh in the u.s and, and a lot of times you know, again, this requirement, they, they look at it like, yeah, you know, yeah, we it's a good idea, but, you know, we can't, we don't have the time to do that right now. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's generally because they're trying to move people in and out of those offices, like those uh, doctor's rooms uh, or, or those patient rooms. And this, like, they're, they're, they're always trying to turn over the rooms uh, as quick as possible because, you know, the, the more patients they see... <laughs> the more they can build the insurance, which in turn translates to more dollars in their pockets. But again, that this is the system that we have. I mean, it's not the greatest, but it's the one we have in place. And it's the one we, we have to work with, you know? So if your doctor doesn't take your pressure in both arms for whatever reason, you can at least do it yourself at home with a reliable blood pressure monitoring device. And, um, you know, you can always bring the machine into the doctor's office to see how close or how off <laughs> the reading is. And then just make a note of that so you have a more, um, you know, an accurate reading at home, you know, so you understand the differences between your home calibrated system versus the doctor's uh, professionally <laughs> calibrated system. And this is cool because anyone can and should keep track of their blood pressure on, you know on their own at home and just remember to keep track of it for future reference and so that you can spot any trends that might pop up uh you know that might be of interest to your doctor and it's actually uh you know this monitoring your pressure at home it's actually pretty simple and straightforward so the first step is obviously to carefully, carefully choose a blood pressure cuff. And I guess this would be a good time to mention that the AHA, the AHA, the American Heart Association, they recommend an automatic uh, cuff style monitor. One of those that, you know, an upper arm, they call it a, a cuff style upper arm monitor. Uh, you know, not the uh, newer uh, wrist or finger monitors, you know, which they've been known to not be as reliable. Um, so definitely you want to get that upper arm monitor they also recommend taking your pressure at the same time every day like in the morning or afternoon or maybe in the evening you know just as long as the same time every day now here's here's a here's what i think about this like uh, I, I mean i've spoken to a lot of doctors in my day and if you're truly concerned about your blood pressure then rather than taking your pressure at the same time every day you'll want to check it at random time and here's the thing with the random time thing 
when you when you take this approach when you take when you check at random intervals you'll get a better understanding of how your body regulates your blood pressure on its own you see there's a term that the doctors use all the time it's called homeostasis this is a word they use to describe this auto regulation of your body's internal systems your blood pressure being a part of one of those systems the cardiovascular system and so your body should be able to normally regulate itself and maintain a constant pressure throughout different activities such as uh, you know exercising and uh, eating so uh, sometimes taking your pressure at the same time every day won't catch these um, homeostatic changes that can uh, you know uncover or reveal other issues in the making so that's key you know and now continuing on with the aha's recommendation of taking your own blood pressure at home um i think this goes without say but i'll say it anyway you know don't smoke don't drink caffeinated drinks or beverages uh, as they as they call them um uh, you know don't, don't do that for at least 30 minutes before measuring your blood pressure. This is what they recommend. They also recommend not exercising before taking your pressure. But honestly, I don't get this one really. Again, in my experience and from what I've gathered from several doctors is that you actually want to take your pressure at different times of the day. And if you're exercising as you should, <laughs> then you should take it after exercising every now and then, you know, just to see what that might show you like what what patterns you might find you know another recommendation from the lovely aha <laughs> from the lovely aha is to go to the bathroom and empty out your bladder or as sheldon cooper uh, refers to it voiding your bladder and so when you actually go to take the reading you'll want to sit with your back straight and supported which means sitting on a uh, you know a hard back chair at a desk or a table and uh, definitely not at a sofa you know ideally your feet should be flat on the floor and uh, you know your legs should not be crossed your arm should be supported on a flat surface like on a table or an armrest with the arm that's being red held at heart level um, also don't, don't forget to roll up your sleeves you know don't take the uh, measurement over clothes you know that kind of skews the reading a bit you know if, if there's any sudden movement with your arm or a twitch or anything like that it'll move the cuff just enough again to throw off those readings so you'll want to sit there for at least five minutes of quiet rest time before starting any measurements and then aside from these simple recommendations again from the american heart association also follow the instructions that came with your blood pressure monitor you know so for instance one key step one key instruction that's pretty common with all of these uh blood pressure monitors is to you know be sure that the bottom of the cuff is placed directly above the bend of the elbow you know so you want that right above the bend and there's most of them again have um like a sweet spot let's call it you know there, there's a certain positioning or like where, where the monitor sits more or less in the middle of your upper arm kind of like where your bicep would be you know um and and those are the little things that you want to keep in mind with your specific blood pressure monitor 
Lastly, take multiple readings and record the results. Now, this trick, this will give you a more holistic view, you know, a better uh, general understanding of where you where you sit blood pressure wise, you know? So what I do is I take three to five readings and I track them in a Google Doc spreadsheet. <laughs> and yes, before you ask, I do have a super simple spreadsheet to keep track of my blood pressure readings, you know? And I suggest that you do the same. Um, it doesn't have to be a spreadsheet, you know, if, if you're more the pen and paper type or you just want to, you know, if you can actually keep that information in your head, if you're one of those, um, you know, hey, whatever system works for you. For me, it's a spreadsheet. That's the way my mind works. That's the way my, uh, you know, that's that's how I make it happen. Um, actually, if you don't have one yet and you'd like a copy of mine, drop me a comment and I can get that out to you ASAP. Um, I was actually thinking of creating a PDF version and giving that out to my VIP community. So you can either get into the free community or just drop me a comment, whichever works best for you. But um, moving on with the, uh, you know, with the readings, once you've taken uh, your three to five readings, you can then average them out to get a better understanding of where you stand pressure wise. If your monitor has built in memory to store the readings, you can even take the monitor with you to your appointments to share the readings with your doctor. So that's a pretty cool feature. You know, some monitors um, have built in memory enough so that you can catch quite a few um, readings and, you know, you can just bring the whole device into your um, doctor's office and they should be able to read it for you and, um, you know, make a determination as to where you stand as far as, you know, are you good? Are you bad? Things like that. Um, actually, some monitors actually allow you to upload your readings to a secure website after, you know, obviously after after you register a profile and whatnot. Um, so that's another thing you might want to keep an eye out for when you're looking into which monitor to buy is are these little features or additional bonuses or add-ons, whatever you want to call it. Keep that in mind when you're looking for the right monitor for you, you know? Um, and so with all that said and done, let's switch gears here and move on to our second segment, Mighty Man. So today we're talking about how the food you're eating might be affecting your sleep. So there's more and more research results that, um, you know, they're showing how the foods you eat can affect how well you sleep and that your sleep patterns can affect your dietary choices. Now, I don't have to remind you how this past year and a half or so, it's been torturous on our sleep cycles, you know, like it, it's wreaked havoc on mine. Um, I, I'm pretty sure many of you out there can, can um, agree with that. I mean, with the the coronavirus pandemic, this whole COVID thing, you know, school and work disruptions. And, uh, you know, for those of us in the U.S., a super contentious election season contributing to uh, countless sleepless nights. Um, you know, sleep experts have encouraged people to try a bunch of different tactics to overcome your stress-related insomnia. You know, and, and again, for me, this was a really tough one. Again, between school, work, and election times, like, oh my God. If you're outside the U.S., I don't know if you, how much of the news reached you guys, but we just went through an election cycle. And um, again, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into political views or anything like that. But let's just say that I didn't need any help not getting any sleep. Like, I didn't, I don't need any additional stress in my life. And this election cycle 
just it brought on quite a bit of stress but like i said um you know that's uh, luckily that's past us at this point but you know sleep experts you know they've they've recommended things like getting more exercise on a regular like more regular exercise you know what i mean and um you know establishing a nightly bedtime routine to uh recalibrate your circadian rhythm essentially you know and also uh cutting back on things like screen time and social media <laughs> you know but so many people might be overlooking another important factor in poor sleep sleep and that's your diet because as I mentioned earlier um, some research shows that foods you're eating can affect on uh, how good or how bad uh, you sleep and your sleep patterns can affect your dietary choices it's basically a vicious cycle it's like one of those uh, catch-22 things <laughs> But one, basically, one affects the other, you know, kind of like the whole chicken and egg thing, like which came first, you know, same, same thing here with diet and sleep, which affects which, that's the question. And so researchers have found that eating a diet that is high in sugar, saturated fat, and uh, other processed carbs can essentially disrupt your sleep patterns uh, while eating more plants and uh, fiber and other foods rich in unsaturated fat like nuts and olive oil, fish, and um, avocados, you know, like these seem to have the opposite effect. They, they actually help promote a good sound sleep at night and now much of what we know about sleep and diet comes from you know large studies that over the years have found that people who suffer from consistently bad sleep tend to have poor quality diets with less protein and fewer fruits and vegetables and also a higher intake of added sugar from foods like um, coke and desserts like donuts and ultra processed foods like um, fried chicken chicken or any of the flavored potato chips but by their nature these studies can only show correlations not cause and effect i think we kind of touched upon this in previous uh, messages so they can't explain for example whether a poor diet leads to poor sleep or vice versa if poor sleep leads to someone making poor diet choices which kind of makes sense if you think about it you know if, if you don't sleep well you'll be dragging your ass around the whole day and you'll most likely reach for that Coke and Snickers bar for a super pick-me-up, you know, but not the greatest choice for energy, but that's what we're talking about here, you know? Is it the sleep that leads to the diet choices or is it the bad diet choices that lead to horrible sleep? I mean, we may never know, but what we do know is that they pretty much go hand in hand. So now, to get a better understanding of the relationship between diet and sleep, some researchers have turned to random controlled trials and where they tell participants what to eat and then look at the changes in their sleep so a number of uh studies have looked at the impact of a bunch of different foods from you know warm milk to fruit juice but those studies have often been small and not very precise in fact some of these trials have also been funded by some of the titans of the food industry if you will you know so as you suspect uh, these results can be biased you know for example one study funded by the world's largest marketer of kiwi fruit found 
found that people assigned to eat two kiwis an hour before their bedtime every night for four weeks had improvements in being able to fall asleep and that the uh, the duration of that sleep and the efficiency or you know how good uh, the sleep was was also improved you know and again the people who administered these studies said that the results were partly due to the abundance of antioxidants in kiwi so they basically said that the kiwi helped them get a better night's sleep because of all the antioxidants they had uh, for a lack of better terms but we have to point out that the study didn't have a control group to compare the results to so i mean it's possible that any and all of these benefits could have been a result of a placebo effect you know i guess we just won't know because they didn't have that control group you know in some other studies that were funded by the cherry industry uh, they found that drinking tart cherry juice can modestly improve sleep in people with insomnia so supposedly by promoting one of the building blocks of the uh, sleep regulating hormone known as melatonin um, so tryptophan or the you know melatonin uh, building block is essentially an amino acid found in many foods including dairy and turkey <laughs> Uh, this is one of the reasons why so many of us feel so sleepy after a Thanksgiving feast. Think about that, huh? <laughs> Wrap your head around that. But the thing with tryptophan is that it has to cross the uh, blood-brain barrier to have any positive sedative effects. So basically, uh, it has to make it into the brain in order for it to have any real effect, you know, for, so for, for your body to actually feel anything, any of those uh, calming and soothing and uh, wanting to sleep feelings you know and when there's other amino acids present from you know other foods it basically ends up unsuccessfully competing for the absorption into the blood so it's it's constantly competing with other foods and when there's other foods in your system with this uh tryptophan it, it's competing with those other foods to get into the blood so eating protein rich foods like milk and turkey uh you know on their own actually decreases the ability of the tryptophan to cross that blood-brain barrier. And one way that was found to enhance uh, the uptake is to pair foods that contain um, carbohydrates, you know, more carb-heavy foods. <laughs> so this little magical combination stimulates the release of insulin, which essentially causes um, these competing um, amino acids to be absorbed much easier by the muscles, you know, and, and so it makes it again it makes it easier for the tryptophan to cross over into the brain through the blood you follow and um you know years of study have gone into the whole this whole relationship between diet and sleep and many of these sleeps you know many of these studies um they basically suggest that rather than emphasizing one or two specific foods with supposedly uh you know quote unquote uh sleep inducing properties like these chemicals that make you sleepy <laughs> these things that put you to bed you know they say that it's better to focus on the overall quality of your diet that's why i'm a big proponent of quality you know it's not necessarily what you eat um but but it's more 
the quality of the stuff that you're putting into your body. I, I that's that's a message I try to drill in to my VIP community. Like I'm always telling them, you know, not only look at what you're putting into your body, but examine the quality of those elements of that food of of the supplements that you're putting into your body. You know, because that's going to have a huge effect on whether or not your body accepts or or kind of denies uh, the food and, and, and all the properties and all the goodness that comes along with that, you know? And also, and here's the thing, what the researchers found was that eating more saturated fat and less fiber from foods like, you know, vegetables, fruits, and um, whole grains led to less deep restorative health. So that really deep um, REM sleep, as they as it's known, when this is what they found, that if you eat foods that are high in saturated fat and less fiber, that you're really not going to hit that deep sleep. So in general, clinical trials have also found the same thing, you know, that, that carbs have a significant impact, a huge impact on your sleep. <laughs> you know, people that tend to fall asleep much faster at night when they eat a high carb diet compared to when they eat a high fat or high protein diet, you know, so if you if you ask me, this might have something to do with the carbs helping tryptophan cross over into the brain much easier. <laughs> you know, we just talked about that, but the quality of those carbs really does matter. Again, there's that quality thing, that quality factor that I was talking about comes into place here. You know, in fact, in fact, your, uh, you know, your carb quality can kind of be a double-edged sword when it comes to sleep. It, it, it's been found that when people eat more sugar and simple carbs, uh, such as, you know, th- things like white bread and uh, bagels, uh, pastries, pasta is a big one, you know, um, or what's known as low quality carbs. It's been found that they wake up more frequently throughout the night, you know. So in other words, eating carbs may help you fall asleep faster, <laughs> but it's best to eat complex or high quality carbs that contain fiber. These will help you get more deep restorative REM sleep because these high quality carbs, they give you a more uh, stable blood sugar level. So if your blood sugar levels are more stable at night, that can be the reason why the complex carbs have been associated with better sleep. So one example of a specific diet that might be optimal for better sleep is the Mediterranean diet because it basically emphasizes foods like vegetables and fruits, nuts, seeds. These are all things that you should be consuming, you know, legumes, whole grains, um, seafood, poultry, you know, like low fat, lean protein. Um, it also uh, yogurt, herbs, spices, olive oil, you know, like all, um, all things promoted by the Mediterranean diet lifestyle. I, I actually love the Mediterranean food and, and the whole diet and lifestyle thing. Uh, this is another thing I push a lot to, uh, you know, my VIP community. And it's, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a way of life like these. I mean, you don't have to adopt it 100%, but definitely incorporate as much um, of the diet as you can. Again, fruits, nuts, whole grains, poultry, yogurt, seafood, like all these things. These are good for you. They promote wellness in your life. And so with 
you know, many of these large observational studies, they found that people who follow this type of diet are less likely to suffer from insomnia and short sleep, you know? And although more research is needed to confirm this connection, the relationship between poor diet and bad sleep is a two-way street, you know? Scientists have found that as, you know, as people lose sleep, they experience uh, physiological changes that can nudge them to seek out that junk food. In fact, in clinical trials, um, healthy adults who were allowed to sleep only four or five hours a night ended up eating more calories and snacking more often throughout the day. They experienced a lot more hunger and their preference for sweet foods, that increased, you know? In men, sleep deprivation stimulates increased levels of the so-called hunger hormone. And, and in women, less sleep leads to lower levels of the hormone that signals the feeling of being full. <laughs> Go figure that one out. So basically in men, a short sleep cycle promotes greater appetite. So it makes you eat more and, and gives you that desire to eat. And with women, there's a less of a signal to their brain uh, that makes them to, you know, stop eating, you know? So what do you, what do you think about that? When I learned this, when I heard this, it was like, wow, that's, that's pretty mind blowing. You know, like, what do you think? Like drop it in the comments. Let me know what your thoughts are because these are actual physical changes that happen in the brain you know one study actually found that when men and women were restricted to four hours of nightly sleep you know for five nights in a row they had a greater activation in the reward centers of the brain in response to pepperoni pizza and like all different junk food <laughs> you know like donuts and candy uh, compared to uh, healthy foods like carrots and yogurt um, oatmeal and fruit and stuff like that. And then after five nights of normal sleep, this pattern of stronger brain responses to the junk food, it practically disappeared. You know, like it's, it's also been shown how having proper sleep can increase your willpower to avoid unhealthy foods. So some studies have found that um, habitually short sleepers who went through a, a program to help them sleep longer resulted in them getting roughly an hour of additional sleep per night you know like they had improvements in their diet you know like in the choices that they made so the most noticeable change was that they cut out at about 10 grams like after they calculated uh, what they cut out um, it, it came out to about 10 grams of added sugar from their diets each day you know, which is more or less the uh, equivalent of about two and a half teaspoons of sugar per day so simply getting at least an extra hour of sleep into their day help them cut out two and a half teaspoons of sugar per day out of their diet. Now we all know how bad sugar can be. So think about cutting that amount of sugar out of your day each day just by getting one extra little hour of sleep every day. <laughs> that is that's some stuff. Huh? I mean, you know, I mean, here, here's the overall takeaway. Um, and it's that the 
uh, you know, diet and sleep, um, they're linked together as one. You know, that that's basically it. That's where that's that's the bottom line. That's what we're trying to get at here. So improving one can and will help you improve the other and vice versa. It basically creates a positive cycle where they feed off one another because the best way to approach it from a health point of view is to emphasize a healthy diet and healthy sleep. <laughs> Again, these are two very important health behaviors that can feed off of and reinforce each other. And that's the key is that that one small little change. Start maybe with your sleep, you know, and then add in the diet or, or start with the diet and, and, and add in the sleep, you know, but they, they, they're linked together and making these little changes um, over time, you know, where they kind of feed off of each other. You'll see how um, that vicious cycle of you binge eating or um, reaching for energy drinks or, you know, candy or sugar, any type of caffeinated drinks to give you that pick me up, that'll be reduced. You know, now once, once you calibrate your sleep and diet, yeah, you can, you'll, you'll, you'll probably still crave the caffeine. Like for me, for instance, it's coffee. That's my, that's my, that's my vice. If I can, if I can drop the coffee, I'm sure a lot of other health things that I have going on, uh, would self-regulate itself. You know, the, as we spoke, uh, you know, as we spoke of earlier, that homeostasis, uh, would take care of itself. You know what I mean? But, uh, until then, it's, I'm a work in progress just like you, you know what I mean? So with all that said, that's it, you guys. That's my show for today. I hope you found some valuable information here. And if nothing else, I hope I've entertained you for a few minutes and was able to bring a little manly sunshine to your day. <laughs> Thanks for taking some time out of your day to listen to me. It's very, very much appreciated. On next week's episode, we'll be talking about the five simple ways to burn off belly fat. So gentlemen, I'm speaking directly to you when I say that you definitely do not want to miss out on that. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with me, get on over to podcast.daspination.com slash VIP to get on the VIP Insiders community where I share even more raw behind the scenes stories, tips, and hats that'll keep you feeling younger and younger each and every day. That's podcast.daspination.com slash VIP. Again, that's podcast.daspination.com slash VIP. Be in the know starting right now. Also, don't forget to rate me on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to this episode right now and leave me a nice, fat, juicy, five-star review and some absolutely beautiful words of why you love the show so much. It really helps me get the word out and it's honestly the one place where your vote truly matters. Until the next chat, take care now. Bye.